Chapter thirty six of Gone to Earth. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Gone to Earth by Mary Webb. Chapter thirty six. Hazel looked out next morning into a cold, hostile world. The wind had gone into its winter quarters, storming down from the top of the mountain on to the parsonage and raging into the woods. That was why Edward and Hazel never heard the sounds, some of the most horrible of the English countryside, that rose as the morning went on from various parts of the lower woods, whiningly, greedily, ferociously, as the hounds cast about for scent. Once there was momentary uproar, but it sank again, and the master was disappointed. They had not found the master was a big, fleshy man with white eyelashes and little pig's eyes that might conceal a soul, or might not. Miss Amelia Clomber admired him, and had just ridden up to say, A good field! Everybody's here! Then she saw Reddin in the distance, and waited for him to come up. She was flushed, and breathless, and quite silent, an extraordinary thing for her. He certainly was looking his best, with the new zest and youth that Hazel had given him, heightening the blue of his eyes and giving an added hauteur of masculinity to his bearing. She would, as she watched him coming, cheerfully have become his mistress at a nod for the sake of those eyes and that hauteur. He was entirely unconscious of it. He never was a vain man, and women were to him what a watch is to a child, something to be smashed not studied. Also, his mind was busy about his coming interview with Edward. He was ludicrously at a loss what to say or do. Blows were the only answer he could think of to such a thing as Edward had said. But blows had lost him Hazel before, and he wanted her still. He was rather surprised at this, passion being satisfied. Still, as he reflected, passion was only in abeyance. Next May... If Miss Clomber had seen his eyes then, she would probably have proposed to him. But he was looking away towards the heights where Edward's house was. There was in his mind a hint of better things. Hazel had been sweet in the conquering. So many women were not. And she was a little wild, frail thing. He was sorry for her. He reflected that if he sold the cob, he could pay a first-rate doctor to attend her and two nurses. I'll sell the cob, he decided. I can easily walk more. It'll do me good. Good morning, Mr. Reddin, cried Miss Clomber as sweetly as she could. May your shadow never grow less, he replied jocosely, as he cantered by with a great laugh. If she'd only die when she has the child, thought Miss Clomber fiercely. Up on the mountain, Edward and Hazel were studying a map to decide in which part of the country they would live. Round the fire sat Foxy, the one-eyed cat, and the rabbit in a basket. From a hook hung the bird in its cage, making little chirrupings of content. On the window-sill, a bowl of crocuses had pushed out white points. But upon their love... Edward's dawn of content and Hazel's laughter broke a loud, imperious knocking. Edward went to the door. Outside stood Mr. James, the old man with the elf-locks who shed the honey-prizes with Abel. 
two farmers from the other side of the mountain, Martha's brother and the man with the red braces who'd won the race when Reddin turned. They coughed. "'Will you come in?' asked Edward. They straggled in, very much embarrassed. Hazel wished them good morning. "'This young woman,' Mr. James said, "'might, I think, absent herself.' Would you rather go or stay, Hazel? Stay along of you, Edward. Hazel had divined that something threatened Edward. They sat down, very dour. Foxy had retired under the table. The shaggy old man surveyed the bird. A nice pet, a bird, he said. Minds me of a throstle I kept. Now, now, Thomas, business, said Mr. James. "'Yes, get to the point,' said Edward. James began. "'We've come, minister, six God-fearing men, and me spokesman, being deacon, and we hope as good will come of this meeting, and that the Lord will bless our endeavour, and now I think maybe a little prayer.' "'I think not.' "'As you will, minister. There are times when folk avoid prayer, as the sick avoid medicine.' James had a resonant voice, and it was always pitched at the intoning note. Also, he accented almost every other syllable. "'We bring you the Lord's message, minister. I speak for him.' "'You are sure?' "'Has not he answered us each and severally with a loud voice in the night watches?' "'Ah, he has.' "'True. Yes, yes,' the crowd murmured. And what we are to say is that the adulteress must go. You must put her away at once and publicly, and if she will make open confession of the sin, it will be counted to you for righteousness. Edward came and stood in front of Hazel. Had you, James continued in trumpet tones, had you when she played the sinner with Mr. Reddin, Esquire, leading a respectable gentleman into open sin, chastened and corrected her, I, given her the bread of affliction and the water of affliction, and taken counsel with us. Ah, there's wisdom in counsel, said one of the farmers, a man with a crafty eyes. Then, James went on, all would have been well, but now to spare would be death. Ah, everlasting death, came the echoes. And now James's face seemed to Hazel to wear the same expression as when he pocketed the money. Now there is but one cure. She must go to a reformatory. There she'll be disciplined. She'll be made to repent. He looked as if he would like to be present. They all leant forward. The younger men were sorry for Edward. None of them was sorry for Hazel. There was a curious likeness as they leant forward between them and the questing hounds below. And then, Edward prompted, his face set, tremors running along the nerves under the skin. And then we would expect you to make a statement in a sermon, or in any way you chose, that you'd cast your sins from you, that you would never speak or write to this woman again, and that you were at peace with the Lord. And then? Then, sir, Mr. James rose. 
we should once again be proud to take our minister by the hand, knowing it was but the deceitfulness of youth that had got the better of you, and the wickedness of a woman. Feeling that this was hardly enough to tempt Edward, the man with the crafty eyes said, "'And if in the Lord's wisdom he sees fit to take her, then, sir, you can choose a wife from among us.' He was thinking of his daughter. He said no more. Edward was speaking. His voice was low, but not a man ever forgot a word he said. "'Filthy little beasts,' he said but without acrimony, simply in weariness. I should like to shoot you, but you rule the world, little pot-bellied gods. There is no other god. Your last suggestion, he looked at them with a smile of so peculiar a quality and such strange eyes that the old bee-man afterwards said, it took you in the stomach, was worthy of you. It's not enough that unselfish love can't save. It's not enough, his face quivered horribly, that love is allowed to torture the loved one. But you must come with your foul minds and eyes to view the corpse. And you know nothing, nothing. We know the facts, said James. Facts. What are facts? I could flog you naked through the fields, James, for your stupidity alone. There was a general smile, James being a corpulent man. He shrank. Then his feelings found relief in spite. If you don't dismiss the female, I'll appeal to the presbytery, he said, painfully pulling himself together. What for? Notice for you. No need. We're going. What do you suppose I should do here? There's no Lord's Day and no Lord's House, for there's no Lord. For goodness sake, turn the chapel into a cow-house. They blinked. Their minds did not take in his meaning, which was like the upper wind that blows coldly from mountain to mountain and does not touch the plain. They busied themselves with what they could grasp. "'If you take that woman with you, you'll be accursed,' said James. "'I suppose,' he went on, and his tone was, as he afterwards said to his wife with complacency, "'very nasty. "'I suppose you dunna what they're all saying, "'and what I've come to believe in this shocking meeting to be God's truth. "'I don't know or care. "'They're saying you've made a tidy bit.' "'What do you mean?' James hesitated. Filthy thoughts were all very well, but it was awkward to get them into righteous words. Well, dear me, they're saying as there was an arrangement betwixt you and him on the gal's account. The old bee-man tried to hush him, and as cheques signed John Reddin went into your bank. Dear me. Slowly the meaning of this dawned on Edward. He sat down and put his hands up before his face. He was broken not so much by the insult to himself as by the fixed idea that he had exposed Hazel to all this. He traced all her troubles and mistakes back to himself, 
blaming his own love for them. While he had been fighting for her happiness, he had given her a mortal wound, and none had warned him. That was why he was sure there was no God. They sat round and looked at their work with some compunction. The old bee-man cleared his throat several times. "'Of course,' he said, "'we know it in a true minister. Mr. James shouldn't have taken it on his lips.' He looked defiantly at James out of his mild brown eyes. Edward did not hear what he said. Hazel was puzzling over James's meaning. Why had he made Edward like this? Love gave her a quickness that she did not naturally possess, and at last she understood. It was one of the few insults that could touch her, because it was levelled at her primitive womanhood. Her one instinct was for flight. But there was Edward. She turned her back on the semicircle of eyes and put a trembling hand on Edward's shoulder. He grasped it. "'Forgive me, dear,' he whispered. "'And go now. Go into the woods. They're not as cold as these. When I've done with them, we'll go away, far away from hell.' "'I dunna mind them,' said Hazel. "'What for should I, my soul?' Then she saw how dank and livid Edward's face had become, and the anguished rage of the lover against what had hurt her darling flamed up in her. "'Curse you!' she said, letting her eyes, dark-rimmed and large with tears, dwell on each man in turn. "'Curse you for tormenting my Edward, as is the best man in all the country, and you naught, naught at all!' The everlasting puzzle why the poultry and the low should have power to torment greatness was brooding over her mind. "'The best,' said James, avoiding her eyes, as they all did. "'A infidel.' "'I have become an unbeliever,' Edward said, "'not because I am unworthy of your God, but because he is unworthy of me. "'Hazel, wait for me at the edge of the wood.' Hazel crept out of the room. As she went, she heard him say, The beauty of the world isn't for the beautiful people. It's for beef-witted squires and blear-eyed people like yourselves, brutish, callous. Your God stinks like carrion, James. Nunc Dimittis Hazel passed the tombstone where she had sat on her wedding day, she went through the thicket where she and her mother had both passed as brides, and down the green slope that led near to the quarry, to the woods. The swallows had gone. She came to Reddin's black yew-tree at the fringe of the wood, and sat down there, where she could watch the front door. In spite of her bird-like quickness of ear, she was too much overwhelmed by the scene she'd just left to notice an increasing, threatening, ghastly tumult that came at first fitfully, then steadily up through the woods. At first it was only a rumour as if some evil thing, imprisoned for the safety of the world, whined and struggled against love in a close underground cavern. But when it came nearer, and it seemed to be emerging from its prison with sinister determination, the wind had no longer any power to disguise its ferocity. Although it was still in a minor key, still vacillating and scattered. Nor had it as yet any objective, it was only vaguely clamorous for blood, not for the very marrow of the soul. Yet 
as Hazel suddenly became aware of it, a cold shudder ran down her spine. Hound dogs, she said. She peered through the trees, but nothing was to be seen, for the woods were steep. With a dart of terror, she remembered that she had left Foxy loose in the parlour. Would they have let her out? She ran home. Be Foxy here? she asked. Edward looked up from the chapel accounts. James was trying to browbeat him over them. No, I expect she went out with you. Hazel fled to the back of the house, but Foxy was not there. She whistled, but no smooth, white-bibbed personality came trotting round the corner. Hazel ran back to the hill. The sound of the horn came up intermittently with tuneful devilry. She whistled again. Reddin, coming up the wood at some distance from the pack, caught the whistle, and seeing her dress flutter far up the hill, realised what had happened. "'Bother it,' he said. He did not care about Foxy, and he thought Hazel's affection for her very foolish, but he understood very well that if anything happened to Foxy, he would be to blame in Hazel's eyes. Between him and Hazel was a series of precipitate places. He would have to go round to reach her. He spurred his horse, risking a fall from the rabbit holes and the great ropes of honeysuckle that swung from tree to tree. Hazel ran to and fro, frantically calling to Foxy. Suddenly the sound that had been querulous, interrogative, and various changed like an organ when a new stop is pulled out. The pack had found. But the scent, it seemed, was not very hot. Hope revived in Hazel. It'll be the old scent from yesterday, she thought. Maybe Foxy'll come yet. Seeing Reddin going in so devil-may-care a manner, a little clergyman, a guinea-pig on Sundays, and the last hard-riding parson in the neighbourhood on weekdays, thought that Reddin must have seen the fox, and gave a great view halloo. He rode a tall, raw-boned animal, and looked like a monkey. Hazel did not see either him or Reddin. With fainting heart she had become aware that the hounds were no longer on an old scent. They were not only intent on one life now, but they were close to it, and whoever it was that owned the life was playing with it, coming straight on in the teeth of the wind instead of doubling with it. With an awful constriction of the heart, Hazel knew who it was. She knew also that it was her momentary forgetfulness that had brought about this horror. Terror seized her at the dog's approach, but she would not desert Foxy. Then, with the fearful inconsequence of a dream, Foxy trotted out of the wood and came to her. Trouble was in her eyes. She was disturbed. She looked to Hazel to remove the unpleasantness much as Mrs. Marston used to look at Edward. And as Hazel, dry-throated, whispered, Foxy, and caught her up, the hounds came over the ridge like water. Riding after them, breaking from the woods on every side, came the hunt. Scarlet gashed the impenetrable shadows. Coming as they did from the deep gloom, fiery-faced and fiery-coated, with eyes frenzied by excitement and open cavernous mouth, they were like devils, emerging from hell on a foraging expedition. Miss Clomber, her hair loose and several of her pin-curls torn off by the branches, was one of the first, determined to be in at the death. 
The uproar was so terrific that Edward and the six righteous men came out to see what the matter was. Religion and society were marshalled with due solemnity on God's little mountain. Hazel saw nothing, heard nothing. She was running, with every nerve at full stretch, her whole soul in her feet. But she had lost her old fleetness, for Reddin's child had even now robbed her of some of her vitality. Foxy, in gathering panic, struggled and impeded her. She was only halfway to the quarry, and the house was twice as far. I canna, she gasped on a long, terrible breath. She felt as if her heart was bursting. One picture burnt itself on her brain in blood and agony. One sound was in her ears, the shrieking of the damned. What she saw was Foxy, her smooth little friend, so dignified, so secure of kindness, held in the hand of the purple-faced huntsman above the pack that raved for her convulsive body. She knew how Foxy's eyes would look, and she nearly fainted at the knowledge. She saw the knife descend, saw Foxy, who had been lovely and pleasant to her in life, cut in two, and flung, a living creature fine of nerve, to the pack, and torn to fragments. She heard her scream. Yes, Foxy would cry to her as she cried to the mighty one dwelling in darkness, and she, what would she do? She knew that she would not go on living with that cry in her ears. She clutched the warm body closer. Though her thoughts had taken only an instant, the hounds were coming near. Outside the chapel, James said, Dear me, a splendid sight. We'll wait to verify the eightney columns till they've killed. They all elbowed in front of Edward, but he had seen. He snatched up his spade from the porch and knocked James out of the way with the flat of it. I'm coming, dear, he shouted. But she did not hear. Neither did she hear Reddin, who was still at a distance and was spurring till the blood ran, as in the tail of the death-pack, yelling, I'm coming, give her to me. Nor the little cleric, in his high-pitched nasal voice, calling, Drop it, they'll pull you down, while the large gold cross bumped up and down on his stomach. The death that Foxy must die, unless she could save her, drowned all other sights and sounds. She gave one backward glance. The awful, resistless flood of liver and white and black was very near. Behind it rose shouting devils. It was the death pack. There was no hope. She could never reach Edward's house. The green turf rose before her like the ascent to Calvary. The members of the hunt, the master and the huntsman, were slow to understand. Also, they were at a disadvantage, the run being such an abnormal one against the wind and up a steep hill. They could not beat off the hounds in time. Edward was the only one near enough to help. If she had seen him and made for him, he might have done something. But she only saw the death-pack, and as Reddin shouted again near at hand, intending to drag her onto the horse, she turned sharply. She knew it was the black huntsman, with a scream so awful that Reddin's hand grew nerveless on the rein. She doubled for the quarry. A few woodlarks played there, but they fled at the oncoming tumult. For one instant... The hunt and the righteous men, Reddin the destroyer and Edward the saviour, 
saw her sway, small and dark, before the staring sky. Then, as the pack, with a ferocity of triumph, was flinging itself upon her, she was gone. She was gone with Foxy, into everlasting silence. She would suck no more honey from the rosy flowers, nor dance like a leaf in the wind. Abel would sit these next nights making a small coffin that would leave him plenty of beehive wood. There was silence on God's little mountain for a space. Afterwards a voice, awful and piercing, deep with unutterable horror, the voice of a soul driven mad by torture, clutched the heart of every man and woman. Even the hounds raging on the quarry edge cowered and bristled. It echoed in the freezing arches of the sky and rolled back unanswered to the freezing earth. The little cleric who had pulled a prayer book from his pocket dropped it. Once again it rang out, and at its awful reiteration the righteous man and the hunt ceased to be people of any class or time or creed, and became creatures swayed by one primeval passion, fear. They crouched and shuddered like beaten dogs, as the terrible cry once more roused the shivering echoes. Gone to earth. Gone to earth. End of chapter 36 End of Gone to Earth by Mary Webb Recording by Rachel Linton, Bristol, UK